basically what I try to do is give young women the same advice that I followed myself. It's very simple. Lean in. Don't accept the status quo. Constantly adopt this perspective of continuous growth, continuous education as mechanisms to advance yourself. Do that fervently with excitement. And I have found in my career that when I've done that and opportunities have come my way, I was ready for those opportunities. Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact on Chicago and their communities. And we have a great set of ladies today. If this is your first time listening to The Broadcast, welcome. We're glad you found us. And for those of us joining again, welcome back. And thank you so much for listening as always. All of this is possible because of you and also our amazing sponsors and partners, which is We Will and Evolve Her, and of course, our podcast home, 1871, which is Chicago's premier hub for entrepreneurs, innovation, and technology. Uh, I'm Becky Carroll. I'm President CEOC Strategies. I'm also your host. So while women represent 50% of the population, we are still woefully woefully behind in holding top management positions across all industries and sectors, including government. Uh, But today we're joined by some three women executives who are trying to change that. They're all at the top of their game who have already broken glass ceilings in government here in Chicago. So please welcome interim president of Olive Harvey College, Felicia Davis, Commissioner of the Chicago Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection, Rosa S. Carreno, and CEO and Executive Director of the Illinois Medical District, Dr. Suzette McKinney. So welcome to the broadcast, ladies. Hi, thank you. So again, thanks so much for being here today. And just to orient our listeners for this episode, why don't you each give us your 30-second elevator pitch on your organization and the work that it does. And Rosa, for fun, I'm going to start with you. Okay, great. So Rosa Scareño, Commissioner, Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection. Our department um, regulates uh, the business community in Chicago by issuing licensing as well as enforcing uh, compliance of that. And we also uh, address all the consumer issues uh, through consumer protections. Very nice. So yeah, so if I have a problem with the business, I'm calling you. Or from a business license, I'm calling you. Absolutely. Exactly. If you want to start up and grow and you want to be successful, come see us first. Yay. Dr. McKinney. Yes. Hi, and thank you again. I'm Dr. Suzette McKinney, the CEO and Executive Director of the Illinois Medical District. And we are a 24-7, 365 environment that includes four major hospitals and health systems, medical research laboratories, and a number of other healthcare and scientific related organizations. And what we do is cultivate healthcare, health education, biotechnology and technology innovation on the near west side of Chicago, while also fostering economic growth and development. Yes, you guys have a big, big, big chunk of space over on the near west side, which is close to my home and drive past it all the time. So you're obviously very busy over there. Yes, we are. (laughs) Miss Davis. Hi, Becky. Thank you for having me. My name is Felicia Davis, interim president of Olive Harvey College, one of the seven city colleges of Chicago, and that's one of the seven community colleges. And I will say that the community colleges serve, we really do serve all comers. We have 70,000 students who come to us for anything from workforce training to get retrained in a field if their field perhaps is no longer 
growing and thriving and get retrained in another field, as well as adult basic education, ESL learners who come to our school. Um, you know, most of those folks, adult basic education is GED, as well as many students who come out of CPS and adults who return to school to complete an associate's degree or other training programs across the city. Well, I'm going to share that when uh, I went to high school, I was lucky to get enough to get into Lane Tech, but I had too much fun my first two years. So I spent my last two years making up for it. So then I went to Wright College uh-huh. to get my AA, and then I got a free ride to Loyola after that. So I I owe you guys. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. That's good to know. Yeah, I know. So as the leader of organizations with multi-million dollar budgets and tens of thousands of students and businesses and partners that rely on you and the services you provide, no pressure. What kinds of challenges are unique to you as executives operating in the public space that perhaps your you know, corporate partner or counterparts don't necessarily face? And Suzette, I, I think you probably interface a lot with um, big, big corporations and companies as your counterparts. So kind of What's your take on that? Absolutely. So you're right. We interact quite a bit with corporate partners. I think one of the uh, challenges or differences that I see in my interaction with corporate partners is that, you know, there is a culture in the uh, corporate space of efficiency and effectiveness and very limited bureaucracy. And there's also this perception of the public sector or the public space that we lack those three things. And so uh, typically when I'm working with corporate partners, particularly for the first time, one of the first things that they say to me is, we don't want to have to deal with a lot of bureaucracy. And so a lot of my work deals with shattering those, what I call misperceptions Mm -hmm. about the public sector, because I think we can be very effective, we can be very efficient, and we can do so uh, with minimal bureaucracy. And so I try to stress to my corporate partners that our goal is to get work done and to get it done as efficiently as possible. And so we practice that every day. I was going to say, I think nothing against, you know, the guys who are CEOs, but I've worked with a lot of you all and you definitely have a way of being very efficient and doing it in a very pleasant way as well. And speaking of like government bureaucracy and whatnot, I mean, you, Rosa, running your department, you've done a lot to really kind of cut that red tape. Um, but so what's kind of your take on kind of the challenges that, you know, you really face in your role versus maybe what others might experience outside of the bubble of City Hall? Sure. I think in addition to what Suzette has indicated, I absolutely agree with that. I think that there's a total misperception in terms of the the great amount of work uh, that is done by government. Everyone is shaking their heads absolutely. right now. I, I always, <laughs> when I go out and speak to students, I tell them, when you get up in the morning, the fact that there are streets that are open and clean and the fact that water is running and the fact that there's all these different things that you wake up and actually don't think about, it's because we are making it happen. I think another great distinction is that in our public roles, we serve the people of Chicago. The residents are our clients and therefore their concerns range from one extreme to the other. And we must be prepared to provide the services in as quick and as efficient manner as we can. So when you take the totality of government agencies and employees that are out there and you compare that to the number of residents and visitors Mm -hmm. uh, and tourists who are in our city whose needs we must address, I think you would 
find it difficult to identify a company that addresses that many customers with that many range of, of needs in as effective and as efficient way as government. Sure, I think we all have areas of, of improvement and we're always working to make those better. But I think that that is a very unique difference. And I, I don't I think it's under under communicated. And mm-hmm. I think we need to make people aware of the value uh, that government uh, plays in people's lives. Well, and as a former chief operating officer for the city, you would have a very unique perspective into making sure all the streets and everything are clean too. And it is something that we all take advantage of and you don't really give government credit for making sure all those trains are running on time. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so do you kind of have like a perspective on your counterparts who are at some of the other universities? <laughs> of course, you know, bureaucracy is bureaucracy. And right. I'd say some of the larger universities may even have some more challenges that than you guys might even have. But of course, you're all going to have your own. I think with, you know, we're part of a public education system. And in Chicago, a chancellor and Dr. Jackson at CPS and the mayor have worked really hard to try to expand this idea of K through 14 and understanding many of our students who come out of CPS can come to city colleges for free if they maintain a 3.0, graduate with a 3.0 average and are you know college ready ACT scores and such. And in fact, then just like you did, you were a star scholar before there was star, mm-hmm. Becky, and, and they go on to partner institutions, tuition either you know at a reduced rate of tuition or on scholarships. And I think that for us, I you know always am reminded that community is the first part of community college. And so I think that there is an extra layer of accountability. Mm -hmm. There is an extra level of transparency when it comes to the work of community colleges that doesn't really, I don't think gets out there that people actually see it in that way. We are always reminded every day that the money that we spend, and I know that that Rosa and and Suzette feel the same way, every dollar we spend is a taxpayer dollar first. And that we have to be very good stewards of that. Mm -hmm. And for me in particular, being at the community college where my students, who are also my customers, are in the building every day. And I think about their parents and their families who are not in the building, but they are also our customers. And then I also think about the employers that will be hiring them in a very short term. Mm-hmm. We turn we have you know short-term programs, for example, a forklift training certificate will get you out in three and a half days. So we're turning folks into the workforce in a very short order. And so we have to have a very close connection to those job partners and industry as well. And so I just think that from a public perspective versus a private perspective, there are a lot of different players at, and, and there's there's a higher level of accountability, a higher level of transparency in what we do and how we do it. And I would add scrutiny to that. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you're in this, you're under the microscope all the time. So unlike private sector counterparts, which have a veil and if things are going on there, you might not know about them, but you you can't hide what's going on in, in government. But also what comes with government is like you said, you get to like have that close connection to community, which I think is a lot more rich. And I think we're all in public service, you know, because of that in part. So Felicia, you've now held three high level positions throughout the public sector. You've been director of community engagement in the office of the mayor, you're executive director of the public building commission, and now the interim president of Harvey. So how have the dynamics changed or improved or maybe not entirely improved for women to advance and succeed in leadership positions like yours, would you say? So I will say that I think 
some opportunities have opened up. I'm still, I still don't think, you know, when I look at women in government and this, there's a still, there's still a lack of representation in women in elected offices. Mm -hmm. And you look at, we're half the population. And so I look at the missing pieces. So they're still there. However, I do think that as two women who are here with me today, as you guys shatter glass ceilings, I do think that other younger women, and we're still all still pretty young, but other younger <laughs> yes. women see the opportunities for themselves. And I will say that I, and I know that Rosa and Suzette make it a, a case as well, take very particular interest in mentoring other women and opening up those opportunities because it's part of my core. It's part of what I believe, and it's probably part of why I'm in public service, but it's also as the mother of a daughter, as a woman, I believe that once you are in the room, you have a responsibility to make sure that other women get in the room and also not just get in the room, but sit at the actual table and not women tend to, when you have large meetings, you guys have all seen this, where women tend to congregate, like sit at the chairs that are kind instead of back of the by table. the wall instead yeah. of the table. And I, I've been known to stop a meeting and say, no, everyone at the table. So I do think that we have made progress, but I also know that there are miles and miles to go before we fully get to the state where we have equity mm. in an area. Yeah. And Rosa, I mean, you've been in government because you and I almost started out together like 20-ish years ago or so. So, and, but you've, you've stuck with it a lot. I know. <laughs> <Like> quiet. <laughs> but you've stuck with it a lot longer um, than I did. But, you know, what has been your observations about those opportunities for women? You know, I think uh, there's there's certainly been improvement over the years. I think government uh, for women is is definitely good we i think we fare much better in government sector than in private sector it is more progressive and i i have to say kudos to the mayor who has several women in leadership roles and and i i'm very proud to be in in a position where i think we can not only make a difference in in the roles that we play, making strong, um, whether it's policy, programmatic uh, decisions, leading these agencies, I think, p- provide us a platform, as Felicia was indicating, so that we can be role models, even just by being in these roles. And certainly, I think being a public servant is something that is so special. I think it's a very tough job, but it's also a very special job. You were talking, Becky, about how it's working with community is really kind of that extra spice that comes with government work. I think there is a, there are challenges because of all the, the things that come in, in serving the public, but oh my God, every day coming to work and knowing that you can make a difference in people's lives and then being a woman and being out there very public I think really speaks volumes. And I think Mm -hmm. just by serving in these roles, we can be impactful. And so I'm certainly like Felicia, out there wherever I can is just trying to motivate women. You know, I started as a receptionist, I always tell people, and I put myself through school during these years. And so working hard and being recognized for it brings a lot of value. And I think you really encourage people by speaking about your own personal story mm-hmm. and not losing sight of the uh, communicating the goals and the mission that you've you've been given in these big res- roles mm-hmm. well and sharing like you said sharing your story with other women to see like wow you started as a receptionist you put yourself through school and now you're a commissioner of a powerful important agency at city hall i mean it speaks volumes not just to opportunities have been created but i mean you you got yourself there 
Right, so. right, right. Thank you. So yeah, and sometimes I think is that like since you work a lot in the medical profession that I know I could be wrong, but I have a feeling sometimes you might be the only woman in the room for some meetings. <laughs> quite often the only woman in the room and also quite often the only minority woman yeah. in the room. Yeah. So, but you know, I was thinking about this question and thinking about advice that I would give to other young women who are trying to achieve some of the same achievements that either Rosa or Felicia or myself have achieved. And you know, honestly, what I try to do is give young women the same advice that I followed myself. And that is, it's very simple. Lean in. Don't accept the status quo. You know, constantly adopt this perspective of continuous growth, continuous education as mechanisms to advance yourself. And, um, you know, do that fervently, you know, mm -hmm. and with excitement. And I have found in my career that when I've done that, and opportunities have come my way, I was ready for those opportunities. But I also feel like sometimes as women, we will doubt ourselves. And so I also tell young women, don't doubt yourself. If you know you've done the work, be confident in the work that you've done. And you may be afraid, but when that opportunity comes your way, boldly step into it mm -hmm. and trust the training, trust the education and just go for it. And that's what I've done in my career. And I try to be an example to other women and I tell them it will work, but you have to do it. You have to put in the work. And I think when we put in the work, others see that, you know, and that becomes right. evident. Well, and you wouldn't be where you are right now if you didn't put yourself out there and challenge exactly. yourself. Cause I hear a lot like when women are, you know, presented me with an opportunity, what do we say? Like, I don't know if I'm qualified. Can yeah. I do that? And yeah. men are like, yeah, I can do that. Absolutely. So we got to, you know, take that on a little bit more for ourselves. So what kind of advice would you also, or, or do you already give other women you're trying to mentor or lift up when you have these conversations? I have a feeling all of you guys have had many of these conversations, especially in the last year or so. Yeah, I um, echo, you know, a lot of what Suzette just said. I also, particularly in the, in the public sector, I talk a lot about the humanity of a person. So my own humanity, I think that being in the public sector, working so closely with community partners, other nonprofits and organizations, you have the opportunity to have the fullness of your humanity on full display. And I think that um, too often um, women are told to kind of like hide that other half of themselves. And so I think that you are a whole person you come to this work and whatever the work is, you come to this work as a whole individual and it would be you know, ridiculous to keep half of you at home. Mm -hmm. And so I do talk a lot about you know, the personal attributes that have gotten you there, whether it's um, faith or you know, family. I know for myself personally, the last couple of years I've been working on grace for myself even, and for others. And so just having those human characteristics present is also equally important. So it's it's almost, you know, it's the balance between the things that you know, and then that emotional, you know, the, the emotional um, mm -hmm. intelligence or the that quotient of you, and making sure that that part of you is also present. And so we have the ability and the opportunity, I actually just the privilege to share those stories, to be honest about where we come from. I tell my students and everyone at Olive Harvey, my mother was a GED student there. It's part of my story. It's part of the deep connection that I have with the institution. Part of the reason why I'm serving there now as interim president is because our lives changed mm 
because my mother went back to school to get her GED. And that lesson, what she instilled in me and my sisters and my brother is that if I tell you education is important, then I have to show you. So education has always been an important pillar. But just that one pivotal thing really can change a family. And so those are there are small ripples like that, I mm-hmm. think, throughout our entire city. They don't get elevated enough. And I think that when when women and actually, you know, men should show a little more humanity too. to be honest with you. We might be in different uh, circumstances because we are all humans first and we all have that whole part of us. And if we did that more, I think people would see the completeness of us as individuals. And yeah. And women, I think by our nature, we have a little bit more that emotional quotient that we bring to everything we do. And I do think, like you said, it is true. Like we should let men be able to like share that too. Cause I think for a long time, you know, men can't show emotion, but that's again, you're a whole person, you know, you right. don't have to just keep that at home. And I think that really does make for a better work environment too. So, so what kind of advice or conversations have you had with, with women, Rosa too, about how you think they can, you know, succeed. You know, I think I, I share the the uh, comments that have been made. And, and I think in terms of just being the mother of a, a 11-year-old boy, uh, in terms of how I'm teaching him to really uh, be understanding of his surroundings and really be more aware of uh, the issues that we are not necessarily, I don't tell them to like know everything that's going on today, but I think understanding the role that men play in the lives of women and the role that men play today in in the business world, I think it's important for us to be teaching the young women, but certainly mm-hmm. also for myself, mm-hmm. the young men as they come up and, and making sure that the future of our city is going to be much more equitable if we start to have those conversations early. In terms of just additional information, I think for me, coming here as an immigrant child, I think speaking to that population and, and women who often have other challenges in their lives and to talk about how you can break those barriers. And Chicago is just a open city and allows us to really flourish here, not only through a great uh programs at the city colleges that are free mm-hmm. today, if that is the path, and specifically for a lot of our dreamers, yes, it is really the only path today. But I think using, again, this dialogue and stories about how how does my life story serve as an example for others so that they don't think there are barriers for mm-hmm. them. And then not just talking about, hey, you know, I was an immigrant child. It's really about look at the difference I can make today. By being in a position like the one I have, I'm able to support entrepreneurs. I mean, in our in the business world, we know that the majority of businesses, of a large percentage of them, especially the ones that are opening today, are opened by immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. And in immigrant communities, they are communities that are adding to our economic infrastructure, adding jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, telling the whole story, right? Telling about where we came from, what our obstacles were, but really not focusing on that and then taking it to the next degree. You can make, your life can be such a huge contributor to other people's lives. And so I like to focus on on how we can positively impact each other and work together. I'm also a big proponent of teamwork. Mm-hmm. In my office, it's all about team. Right. You know, well, and, and so. That's key and leadership starts from the top. And I think like if you're someone, especially has a story like you, public service, like just means so much more because you were given an opportunity to be here and now you have the opportunity not just to give back but help show others by example. And I think you have to reach back. Reach back and move forward. Yep, with you. 
So this is like a little fun part of the show. I always try to do something different. It's not the same thing, but I always try to like throw something in that like, you know, will make everyone giggle who's uh, taking a listen to this. But so I know each of you personally enough to know that you have stories and experiences that are very unique to each of you. And I think might blow some minds. So um, I'm just gonna, it's just a quickie little thing, but it's always kind of fun. So Felicia, let's start with you. So you spent the first 10 years of your career in a very different position than you have today. Granted, it was public sector, but it was different, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was. I spent 10 years on the Chicago Police Department. The first couple of years in patrol, like everybody, everybody has to come in through patrol working in some of the toughest neighborhoods. I was a beat cop in Inglewood. I still drive down, one of my old beats was 733, and there was a funeral home in the beat. Mr. Callahan used to sweep his street a sidewalk every single day and every single day I used to stop and say hello to him and I still see him today I've done work with him actually at Olive Harvey I've sent a trailer of supplies down to Houston for the hurricane relief oh. with his foundation and so it's amazing how life comes full circle mm -hmm. but I spent eight of those years in the violent crimes division as a detective and so I am very a lot of people don't know this about me, and, and that's, I, I say I grew up in the police department because I was much younger than I am now. Um, <laughs> I served from 1991 until 2001, so I was, you know, much younger, and I say I grew up there, but I am trained to, as a detective, you're trained to not rush to conclusions, to look, you know, really, truly look at the facts that are before you, to really ask questions, and I think that that inquisitive nature. One, I was an inquisitive kid, so I think it just suited me and, and fit. If you ask my mom, she'll tell you I ask questions all the time. But that kind of like inquisitive nature, how does it work? How do I understand this more? And asking those questions has served me well in every single role that I've had to do because part of a new job, and if you open yourself up to other opportunities, you have to be flexible mm -hmm. and you have to ask those questions. You have to be willing to ask those questions and to learn about each of those things. So that kind of skill set has served me well. It's not always received positively. I mean, because they're in the reality of where the times that we're living mm -hmm. in, is people have a lot of negative connotations about serving in law enforcement. I am proud of the time that I served. I think it's, it is truly working in a district with a community. You know, I had the opportunity on the police department to work in all 77 of our neighborhoods to really understand the city in a way that most people don't. I feel that's a privilege mm -hmm. to really understand people when they say boots on the ground. I was I was those boots on the ground and to talk to people firsthand and understand the struggles of people, whether it's, you know, someone in Inglewood or Roseland or Woodlawn or someone in Galewood or mm -hmm. Andersonville or Rogers Park, right? I mean, at the end of the day, honestly, Everyone here wants the same thing. They want to be safe. They want good schools for their family. They want safe housing, affordable housing in many instances. And they want to have their children have a better life than they had. So that's, if you understand that, that's like the basic that every, the basics that everyone wants, then in that way we're all the same. And I really enjoy being part of that and all the different roles that I've served and help people in different ways to really achieve those dreams. Well, it certainly was a great foundation for everything that followed for you, for sure. Thank so you. unique and different, but a great foundation. Thanks. So, um, so we have a an, another interesting story. I remember first hearing it when I first got to know you, Suzette. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. So when disaster strikes, Suzette, why does your phone start ringing off the hook? Well, uh, my phone starts ringing off the hook when disaster strikes because I have spent the bulk of my career working in emergency preparedness and disaster response. 
and that is preparedness and response for what we call in the field all hazards emergencies. To the everyday person, what that means is no matter whether the emergency is a natural disaster or a man-made disaster such as terrorism, mm -hmm. it could be bioterrorism, chemical terrorism, or even radiological or nuclear terrorism, or a large-scale infectious disease outbreak like the Ebola outbreak that we saw in 2014 and mm -hmm. 2015, or even an unintentional emergency such as a large-scale power outage or hazardous material spill. I spent the bulk of my career working, quite frankly, for the city of Chicago in planning for how we would deal with those emergencies and specifically the public health and medical aspects of those emergencies. So how do we protect people's health, get them back healthy, how do we protect the healthcare system so that the healthcare system is available mm -hmm. to provide healthcare after all of these emergencies? And um, that really speaks to, I would say, the circuitous nature of my career. <laughs> and I always tell young people, you know, don't be afraid to sometimes break out of the rigid plan that mm -hmm. you have for yourself. When I grew up, I knew that I wanted to be a doctor, and so I was going to go to college, and then I was going to go to medical school, and then I was going to be a doctor. But going through college, I realized, you know, there are other experiences that I could have. There are other experiences that would augment my career in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I graduated, I decided to go to graduate school first and study public health so that I could learn health from a population perspective as opposed mm. to an individual perspective. And I said, I get a public health degree and then I spend a year in public health, that would really sort of, I think, make me a great physician. Well, as it turned out, I finished that public health degree three months before 9-11 happened. Oh, wow. And so that first job that I was only planning to spend a year in was with the city of Chicago and I was assigned to writing our medication distribution plans for how we would provide medications to residents of the city after a bioterrorism attack, mm -hmm. and then coordinating our city plans with the plans of all of the surrounding counties that make up the larger Chicago metropolitan area. And I have to tell you, this was, you know, 2002, 2003 that I started this work. Mm -hmm. and. It was such intriguing work that once that year came and went, <laughs> I found it impossible to put myself away from that. And so, um, you know, in that capacity, I've worked with both Felicia and Rosa. In fact, that's how yes. I met each of the two of them, oh, planning wow. for the public health and medical aspects mm -hmm. of these emergencies that were potentially possible for happening here in the city of Chicago. And even though I've stepped away from emergency preparedness on a full-time basis, I'm still in it. Mm -hmm. um, you still I, do like interviews and stuff like when disaster strikes and yes. provide advice and guidance, right? I've been very fortunate to have had the ability to develop a bit of expertise in the area. I just published my first book. I know. Wow. What, wait, what's the name of the book and where can people find it? It is called Public Health Emergency Preparedness, A Practical Approach for the Real World. It is available on Amazon in both um, physical form mm -hmm. as well as uh, Kindle form. Mm -hmm. And it's also available at the publisher's website, which is JB Learning. 
So and just, that's something that might be taught in the classroom as well, right? I think that was, you had yes. told me that was part of the intent of the book. It's actually written as a textbook mm -hmm. for master's level students and doctoral level students who are studying emergency preparedness. And that's because I do have a commitment to cultivating the next generation of the public health workforce dedicated to this field. Because in our society, whether it's our city, our state, our country, emergencies and disasters are going to be a part of life. Mm -hmm. And I was very concerned that when I came into the field, most of us were stumbling into the field. And emergencies and disasters in this country have evolved in a way that we cannot afford for mm -hmm. the future workforce to stumble into mm -hmm. the field. They need to come into the field knowledgeable and with some practical and operational experience so that they will be able to handle these disasters that are getting more severe and larger in their scope and in their size. They sure seem to be. It's kind of scary. So it's good that I know I have someone on speed dial in the event of, <laughs> what do I need to get? What, no, yes. actually, when I first learned your story, I looked up something you did and I found it was like the top 10 things to get and prepare for. And, and, and yes. I have some, I think, I don't have everything on the list, but I do have some things on the list. So you can Google that and at least it's a little go-to list. So, so that's my, that's my yeah. work at Harvard. I, I teach at Harvard. I also teach here in Chicago at UIC. Oh, nice. um, but one of the things that I will say about the book, although it's written as a textbook, I used very simple language so that anybody can pick it up, go to the table of contents, pick a topic, mm -hmm. read about it, and have the ability to understand it. Because I think the other thing that is critically important in emergency and disaster, both preparedness and response, is that we work with the community mm -hmm. and we make sure that individuals and families and communities also have the knowledge and the power of education in terms of what they need to be doing to protect themselves. Because right. the fact of the matter is, the government cannot be everywhere at once. Yeah, so it's very accessible in that respect. So you don't have to be getting your master's level Absolutely. in public health disaster preparedness to actually pick it up and read it. That's good. I have been meaning to get that. So that's on my list too. So yeah. So um, last for Rosa. So speaking of kind of crises, you <laughs> helped to craft critical life safety communications and safety protocols several years ago that are still used today by the city. So tell us how that came about and that experience. I just think it's so interesting that the three of us are like, yeah. there. this is this where- little nexus here. Uh, it, it, we have a little bit in common in this area. So yes, yeah, so following a devastating fire at the city, the I 69 was- 69 West Washington 69 building. West Washington. I remember literally walking a past it that yes. day and you were there too. So. Yes, I was working for the prior administration's press office and dealing with crises there just every day on different things, but this was a very unique uh, situation and so so I went to work for the fire department at that time. It was a, a transformative year. I call it my dog year. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, because it was the one year I worked at the fire department. And I feel very privileged to have worked with individuals that are out there saving lives every day. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, like Felicia's role as a, as a police officer, I have a greater appreciation for the folks that are out there saving lives. But following that devastating fire, there was a complete revamp of protocols, life safety protocols in the fire department. And, and I had the privilege of working with an entire team that, an entirely new team that came in to really address reforms in a very targeted way, specifically the high-rise life safety. And so I was uh, very much involved in a lot of the reforms that took shape, certainly the communication aspect, but leading a more the the outreach education and the trainings that are even used today in terms of life safety and and preparation. Um, and so, I, you know, one of the things that I think is so important to remind listeners and really residents as a whole is that in time of crisis, whether it's Suset, and yes, I remember working with you on so many different initiatives, mm-hmm. the Ebola, I remember that. Mm-hmm. So this crisis communication, crisis management, mm-hmm. the fact that you have people at the city that are thinking through these things that are individuals that have so much skill and so much education and really professionalism Mm -hmm. so that when these things happen at the city, the city is so prepared to respond. But today, I know that those reforms that were implemented at that time uh, are still being used today. And that really makes me very proud. At that time, we also put together the first high-rise life safety conference that brought in fire officials from all over the country. And we were leading the efforts in, in just trying to make buildings safer as a result of that. And so I think what's important to take away from that is that the city is constantly evolving itself. It's constantly preparing itself for the next emergency. And and it it has to. And it happens every single day in small ways as well as big ways. Like that that is an important crisis that happened. But it is just one example of the way that the city and government really is preparing behind the scenes every day. Mm -hmm. I remember when the Ebola scenario hit, I was also working in the mayor's office, working with the health department and really working with them as they were establishing all their emergency plans and just working with them and trying to make sure we were doing everything is a very cohesive system. And so I value that experience, but also having worked for government all these years, having had to work with fire and police and the Department of Health and the Office of Emergency Management, there is just a lot of people that are working together every day. And something that I, till this day, if I hear an ambulance or a police squad car in the middle of the night, I know what's happening in the middle of the night. When everybody's sleeping, you have men and women that are dedicated to true life safety. You know, when I go to work today and I have a crisis at work and I'm like, you know what? No one is going to die. Right. And believe it or not, there are jobs that people are right. work that are working on where they are truly saving people's lives. And so crisis management for me, I think it's something that I've been able to learn through my career at the city of Chicago. It's actually something that I resort to mm-hmm. in my job today in just dealing with the different emergencies or crises, quote unquote, that we deal with on a daily basis, because guess what? No one is dying in my right. job. Um, Well, and to your point earlier, it's just another example of the things that go on below the radar that everyday people don't have to stop and think about until something happens to you. Mm -hmm. And then you see the impact that Mm -hmm. men and women who are first responders are are having on our city. And 
Or it's avoided because of the work. I remember all the work the three of us did together in preparation for NATO. Oh, yes. Right. right. And we were in that room every week after week after week, thinking about every contingency and every scenario and making sure that all of the experts were there and that the city was ready. And it was a successful summit. And it was a big team. And it went off without a hitch when most of these NATO summits all I mean, you'd always see it on the national news, like tear gas going on and rubber bullets flying right. and, and and it was Absolutely. really peaceful. The city was open. The, the trains were running, yeah, the buses right. were running, you could go to restaurants. I mean, the city was open for business and mm-hmm. that's because of all the work. And so I think about that, yeah. that, and I think people should think about that from a public sector standpoint. There are teams of people every single day who are working in big rooms and small rooms on things and eventualities or possibilities and and they're dedicated public servants and i don't think those stories get told and so we the three of us have had that opportunity to be in those close quarters Mm -hmm. and to work on some of those things together which is and i would add you know some of the things you mentioned you know tear gas and things like that protests we were not immune to those things during Mm -hmm. the NATO summit. All of those things were happening as well. But Rosa hit the nail on the head when she said we worked as a system and we did. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember Mm -hmm. Felicia was the one that coordinated all of us and she's right. We were in that room every week, putting our heads together. We had to be accountable, Mm -hmm. male, female, whatever your background was, everyone had to be accountable and had a role. Yeah. And you know, I think what is, I love this conversation, by the way. Becky, thank you for bringing mm-hmm. us together because I think it really gets to the core of of, of what government is and, and the fact that, I mean, I feel very privileged to, to work with women like mm-hmm. both of these women here, but also to know that every day there are people that we're actually making a, a difference in people's lives, whether they see it or not, whether they appreciate it or not, I think we walk away, I know I walk away very satisfied and know that there are people that I can trust that are mm-hmm. smart, a lot of them women, um, working behind the scenes, making really difficult and big major decisions. Yeah. And I think I'm so proud of that. I'm so mm-hmm. proud to be sitting here with you guys. And and now that we're talking about these stories, it just reminds me, you're right, weekends, nights, yes. you know, yeah. snowstorms. Yes. Uh, after 9-11, I remember being in government and just going into too. crisis mode yeah. and, and how everybody just comes together. So I, I don't think you can just say enough about the work that is being done every day. And I think we, I always, when I speak to college students, I'm like, you cannot go into the private sector until you have worked with government at least one summer because you <laughs> should sure. know, you have to know. That makes you accountable to the people and it, it forces people and young professionals before they hit their career to really understand what's happening every single day. And I really encourage young people to come work for government. That's really great advice because I think it's a really important foundation to anything you do. Because if you're working with the right people in government, you're working with people where it's like, you know, mistakes can't be made. You have to have meticulous attention to the work that you're doing because you are so accountable and because so many people like rely on you, right? You're almost making me wish like, I can go back in government right now. Like, I'm starting to like- You kind of are, Becky. So I kind of quasi, I have a little quasi. So, um, so I told you, you know, we had this conversation, it would just fly by and like, I could keep talking for like an hour, but it's gonna soon come to an end after, you know, I thought it would be nice that if everyone just had a moment to really share with our listeners something that 
like you're really particularly proud of or something that you're working on that you want to help educate listeners and the public about regarding your organization and maybe how people can um, find out more about it. So Rosa, why don't you take it first? Sure. So I'm very proud that uh, just within the last month, the mayor announced the small business reforms that have been Yay, put into place. In the works for a while. Yes, and we are aggressively working to put new reforms in in place. And I encourage people to go to our website and find out what those are. But it's everything from reducing the fee of licensing to provide some relief to businesses to uh, having a year-round sidewalk cafes. We're working on pop concept to support businesses where they are today as businesses are evolving. I encourage people to come to our free workshops. We hold many free workshops, not only at City Hall, but in the community. Mm-hmm. We are working very hard to not only start help people start their business, but help people stay in business. So look us up. Well, and small businesses are really the foundation for all the growth that we're seeing. And absolutely, and it is when I first started mine, it was it was hard. I didn't realize like how much will go so whatever is being done to help make that easier for small businesses just means a lot more people will be able to like pursue their dream to have that opportunity. What's your website? It's cityofchicago.org backslash BACP or just follow us on Twitter, Chicago BACP or BACP Rosa, which is my Twitter. But on that point, let me just remind everybody that before you even sign on the lease or put in a nail on the wall, Come see us first. We you don't need your want, license. Yeah. No, well, no, because <laughs> you want inspections. A lot of people spend money and then they actually didn't do something right. And we want right. people to start off on the right foot. And, and you we, guys will give them the, the absolutely. The it's all for free, that. free, free. Come see us. Great, love it. So I am proud of so many things that mm-hmm. are happening at the Illinois Medical District. First of all, I would like to say that the Illinois Medical District is a 76-year-old organization. We're almost 77, and I am super proud to be the first female CEO and the first person of color. But you know, um, one of the things that we have struggled with historically has been anonymity. And so I am so proud of all of the hard work that our communications team and our PR team has been doing to raise the profile of the IMD, including our newly rebranded website, which I'll give the address in a moment. And, you know, as the leader, I'm proud of the work that we are doing to not only raise the profile of the medical district, but to also step fully and boldly into our mission space, which is to promote healthcare and health education, biotechnology and technology innovation, but also economic growth and development in an area of the city that Mm -hmm. has historically been talked about or characterized as vulnerable or depressed or in need. There are amazing things happening on the west side of Chicago, and I am so proud to be able to use the platform that I have and leverage the platform to create even more great things that are happening on the west side. I was educated in Chicago public schools on the west side of Chicago. So (laughs) it is a full circle moment for me to be back on the west side and and helping to advance economic growth and development through uh, the IMD as a vessel. Oh, you must be proud about that. That's great. I I love those stories. Love them. And what's your website? Our website is medicaldistrict.org. Very simple. Very simple. I like it. 
<laughs> so since Suzette is a West Side girl, I am a South Side girl. And I'm a North Side girl. So, and so Suzette, Suzette knows this. Rosa probably knows this. Oh, you guys all know this. I'm South Side girl on Twitter. I'm South Side girl on, yep. on Instagram. So it's really, it's really a part. So I'm very proud of, you know, this past year serving as interim president, Olive Harvey, growing the enrollment, really re-engaging with the community. I talked about my family and how it was really important and how my mother going to Olive Harvey changed our family's life. And I am cognizant of that every day. I'm most proud of the work that we've been doing with employers to get a lot of our young people employed. I'm especially proud of the cohorts of young men that we had from an alternative school. We put them all through forklift training and got a few, a couple of them already employed with Pepsi. Awesome. So I'm, I, I can't, I tell you that, you know, two months ago, those young men before they were graduating from high school probably didn't really have a great outlook. And to take that class just three and a half days and to completely change their lives, I, it, it is a lasting impact and it is, you know, it is a legacy to this institution really that has a strong legacy and also it's you know it's it's my mom's still alive every time i tell people she's like you know I'm, she's still alive and kicking so she gets to see this mm-hmm. and it's also a testament to my mom but i i and i appreciate it because having grown up on the far south side you know a lot of north siders don't know the city goes that far 130th I street do. right <laughs> a lot of i always tell i always joke about that but that this city is changed because olive harvey was there as an anchor institution in the community and that for the southeast side community Community, the far southeast side and the far south side communities who have for decades gone to um, a couple generations have gone to that institution, have received training, new skills, um, started their collegiate life and continued into bachelor's and master's and other degrees and have been really successful contributors to their communities. That's something that's really important and um, something that I'm extremely proud of. I also have a small project that I started. It's called it's a Southside Giving Circle with the Chicago Foundation for Women. Oh, so I'm cool. one of the original founders of this and it is designed and it is amazing. Our intent was to get women who lived on the South Side and that we would harness all of our economic power, give money to organizations that support African-American girls and women on the South Side. So we are actually, we've raised a lot of money, a good deal of money. I won't say a lot. We've raised a good deal of money and we are going into our grant cycle. And that's just women like me who came together across the South Side to say, we want to be part of the positive change. So that's just a personal thing that I'm extremely proud of, that work that we're doing. South Side Giving Circle with the Chicago Foundation for Women. So you can actually find our button there. But for City Colleges and Olive Harvey, it's citycolleges.org. You can find all information there. And it doesn't have to be Olive Harvey, although I'm partial to it. But if there is a city college, a community, a city community college that's closer to you, we're all, they're all, all seven are comprehensive community colleges. And so they have experts or field of specialties for Olive Harvey. It's supply chain, transportation, distribution, and logistics, but there is a specialty area for all of them, but they are first and foremost comprehensive community colleges, and so they serve the needs of a large cross-section of our society, and so... And they're all across the city and every corner and in between. So, well, that was a really nice place to end. And I'm sorry we have to end it because this was really fun. I'm I'm really uh, grateful that you guys made the time because you all are busy, very busy. So thanks again to our guests, Felicia Davis, Rosa Escarino, and Dr. Suzette McKinney for making this episode so engaging. 
And again, the broadcast is brought to you by Sea Strategies LLC, a strategic communications and public affairs firm, bringing passion and veteran experience to help clients meet their business goals. Our sponsors are We Will, which empowers women and children to get involved in the legislative process by affording them opportunities to have their voice heard and Evolve Her, which is Chicago's only creative co-working space for women. So thank you to our podcast host as well, 1871. And the broadcast is produced and edited by Tweed Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nick Fedora, music by Christy Bennett's Fumi Gypsy Project. To learn more about Sea Strategies and the broadcast, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Sea Strategies LLC and visit seastrategiesllc.com. And thanks again for listening. Bye.